This week on The Futurists, Jim Rutt. For humanity to give up on understanding would be a gigantic mistake. Uh, it would probably mean that we can't get much farther than we are. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick with Brett King back after a couple of weeks of missing each other. It's thrilled to see you. Yeah, I know. I know you guys uh, got, yeah, well, we had, a, we had a couple of recordings that that we did with you know Brian and Katie and yeah. and you up you were you opted out and then I opted out of the last couple so you know it's uh, we're sharing the load that it's how it, it up. how it works yeah, yeah. but right. you know I get a lot of comments when I'm on the road people really like the fact that we do um, have uh, different hosts that we mix in because it um, gives a bit of variety so I've been getting some nice feedback on that and um, you know kudos to Katie and Brian started a bit slow but those guys have really been become a, a nice feature um, as guest hosts so anyway. I agree now this show is a special one because uh, for a very long time I've wanted to introduce you to our guest. Um, for the folks who are listening, when we began doing the, the Futurist podcast, um, Brett had just published a book called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, in which he posited scenarios for the future, uh, very much the, the core premise of our show, uh, talking about different ways of scenario forecasting. And, um, and in, in the process of writing about that book, Brett was thinking about how to deal with complex systems and the decision-making process around resource allocation. Well, for a long time, I wanted to connect you with our guest, Jim Rutt. And Jim, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, I want to make this connection for a long time because you're someone who actually is dealing with this. You've spent a considerable amount of time and your your intellect has been devoted to thinking through complex topics, uh, the subject matter of complexity. And in particular, with Game B, you're focusing on uh, the, the immense complex challenges that face society. I thought by way of introduction, we should talk a little bit about briefly about your background, um, because you're kind of like core Internet, uh, you know, uh, or pioneer, I suppose, is the way I'd describe it in the sense that you uh, you were the head of network solutions. Um, and in some respects, you framed out the way the Internet works. Can you tell us briefly about what you did in network solutions? Yeah, actually, Network Solutions was the end of my career. I actually started building the online world in 1980 when I worked at The Source, the world's first consumer online service, and built online services from 1980 uh, all the way through uh, 2001 when I stepped down from Network Solutions and retired after we sold the company. But at Network Solutions, uh, we ran the domain name system uh, for the world. We we have... At that time, we had we actually operated all the the top level servers, you know, you know, dot UK, etc., that pointed to the, each country server. Plus, we ran ourselves right. Comnet org uh, and two or three other ones, dot edu, and uh, a couple other secret ones and stuff. Now, a lot of people think this was a government thing, but it was actually a private enterprise that was managing basically managing the switchboard of the internet, if you will. Yeah, it was out of weird history. If we if we could go into but I'm not not worth doing but it was uh, it was a contract from the government to operate it, it, you know it was a lot like open ai so it started the, it looked like a non-profit at the start it was a lot of volunteer labor and then when domain names started to become very um you know, attractive properties and, and um, you know, had pri- hefty price tags attached to them. That's when things got a little bit complicated, if I remember my my okay. early it, it was all pretty nuts. And I will say also worth noting, I came in at the very end. I came in in 99 as a sensory the right. turnaround guy. Company was uh, already uh, public and growing rapidly, but I will say execution left something to be desired and strategy as well. So I came in, cleaned it up, 
polished it and sold it a year later. Oh. Uh, so, uh, wow. so, so I was right uh, in the uh, midst of the dot com. In, in fact, yeah, we sold it March tenth, two thousand. Within an hour of the top, and some people <laughs> say that our transaction was so absurd that it was the top, right? And <laughs> yeah. uh, and so anyway, yeah, it was fun. So I learned load, and uh, but I had been doing internet stuff and pre-internet stuff for 20 years at this point. So this was essentially just a capstone uh, gig for me. And one of the things you mentioned to me about uh, your time at Network Solutions is that you you um, you found it frustrating, I guess, to, to the, the, the level of discussion uh, around trying to get to consensus. And at one point, you just went for it and created a solution on your own. You said, all right, we're going to launch this. I forget exactly what it was, but you were it was about resolving DNS, I think. It was uh, Chinese domain names, the uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, Chinese character domain names. There have uh-huh. been countless oh, double byte characters. Yeah, but not just the, the specifics. Well, you know, Unicode domain names, but specifically for China. Mm. Uh, and so uh, there have been ongoing international committee blah blahs for you know years on how to do this, and. Uh, uh, it, it was never going anywhere. And it was obviously a huge demand, right? China was starting to come on the internet, right? And it was just disrespectful for them to have to use uh, our domain names, et cetera. Yeah. And so I said, you know, let's just cut this horse. Uh, we have the ability to offer any domain name that's in uh, in a Roman language right today. And so we did a scan of the database of all domains issued so far uh, discovered, I think it was a six or seven character uh, string uh, that it was never used at all in any domain name, six characters or larger. So it was a reserved space. So we just took that out of circulation and said, we're going to use that as the prefix for oh. an encoding into Unicode. Uh, and then uh, that makes yeah. sense. I, mean, it was, I, mean, I was so tired of all these ridiculous hypertech answers, right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, this ain't that hard. And so with it, I just convened a few people in the company. I just drove the process. Didn't take us long. And we came up with a, a doable solution. And within a couple of months, we had to make a, just a few minor changes in our infrastructure. And then most the hardest part was actually the marketing story, how to explain it to the other registrar and such. And we just launched it, God damn it. Uh, and I think we sold $40 million of dollars worth of them in the first three months. It was crazy. And uh, eventually, I, I, I tell you, just I don't even know. I haven't followed that industry after I left. But I believe they're, they're the, the uh, international process eventually ground to some uh, solution. Uh, but whether uh, our little hack, quick and dirty, uh, that allowed the Chinese to actually have domains in their own language, in their own character set, uh, which one actually ended up winning, I don't even know. But we got it out there and got it done in just a couple months rather than because we could. You know, it, we- J- Jim, uh, you know, um, being a part of history, in respect to sort of technology infrastructure and, and things like that. You know, I, I I have the chance to reflect now on some of the things that that we, you know, like the stories we're writing of what the future would be like in 20 years hence, um, you know, back in like the mid-90s, for example, when we were, and, and you'd see a lot of these sort of, um, you know, future of, of technology, future of the world videos that, Microsoft and others would do 2020 vision, you know, and a 2030 vision. And you look back on some of that stuff now, and some of it was um, wildly optimistic and some of it, you know, we underestimated. Like, for example, you know, not much of the 19, you know, 1990s sort of predictions predicted social media and the yep. changes it would have or on the world. Cell phones. Um, yep. yep. Um, 
Now you could you could see a path to from the palm pilots and trios potentially to what we've got today, but um, you know the other thing is you know we didn't predict drones very well, you know. Um, so there are some aspects of technology that um, you know we didn't we didn't get right. But what, what you know back tw- twenty or thirty years ago when you were um, pioneering um, the internet, even even before that, um, and you were sort of having a vision of what this world could be like, how far, how close were we to that today? You know, that, that, that you, you know, that you were sort of the world you're imagining back 30 years ago. That's interesting. Some parts, you know, just like all these predictions, some parts fairly bang on some parts. Holy, we didn't see that one coming at all. Uh, For instance, keep in mind when I was at the source, 1980 to 1982, we were talking about, 300 baud to 1200 baud character oh, mode yeah. only right and yet we had email chat bulletin board shopping stock prices uh you know uh, the world's first confession by a catholic priest approved by the archbishop was done by a chat on our service so we had an awful <laughs> lot of services but the 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 infrastructure was like a wet string in two tin cans right yeah. uh and so i would say we were all pretty close to understanding how ubiquitous email would eventually be and we actually had by 1982 an early precursor to social media called participate and it quickly jumped uh up to the top of the the pop one of the products i personally invented by brute force uh was the original precursor of the blog uh, where we allowed people to have their own site and get paid uh from the very in this 1982 okay, uh, let, me, so we, let me let me try saw, to i'm sorry we're, we're kind of we're kind of going into like uh the, the ancient history of the web here sorry okay. about that that's definitely not the direction we want to go on the show uh the reason i was asking you about network solutions though and your um and, and your ability to kind of cut through the process and get to a result is that uh to me that's characteristic of your approach you are a person who can approach a very complex subject matter uh, and comprehend it, uh, but then also can take decisive action uh, to cut through. You know, most people are paralyzed, right? When they're confronted by a super complex system and they're not quite sure how to proceed and a lot of discussion or dialogue ensues uh, that can slow things down. But in your career, you've been able to cut through. Uh, you've also done that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Santa Fe Institute, because I think that's, to my mind, the best kept secret in the, in the mathematics space, uh, where, you know, you've got researchers, uh, thinking about some of the most complex subject matter in the world. Uh, and you became the chairman of that organization to talk, talk to us a little bit about SFI and about, uh, and about your ability to cut through the noise and get to some decisive action. Yeah. Like Santa, uh, Santa Fe Institute is generally, uh, conceded to be the home of complexity science and yeah. complexity science is essentially the uh, the study of the general properties of complex systems which are systems composed of underlying often much more simple uh, objects in fact one of the co-founders Murray Gell-Mann uh, the guy who invented quarks Nobel prize winner in physics uh, he was uh, at our facility all the way through his life. Uh, and uh, he'd always remind us once a year that the real name of what we did was the science of complexity from simplicity. And so that, you know, that's a very important, uh, you know, uh, sort of lens on. And some of the aspects of complexity science that we explored so far, and it's also important to note that this field's uh, really uh, only almost exactly 40 years old. So it's a baby science as sciences go. So there's much more to be done. One is emergence. It's a key, key idea uh, that 
uh, say, for instance, you, a person at the bottom, you're a bunch of jiggling atoms. Somehow the atoms organize into molecules, into long chain molecules, into cellular metabolisms, into tissues, into organs, into systems, and then into you. And oh, by the way, you're part of an ecosystem, both yeah. a biological and a social ecosystem. And then another key uh lens of the complexity science is adaptation. Uh, the complex adaptive systems evolve once there's a, enough information handling in the system. Uh, and we see that from the very beginning of life. You know, a very simple bacteria will file, follow a glucose gradient. And, uh, you know, 19-year-old boys will be riveted by Budweiser ads with uh, uh, gals in bikinis playing volleyball, right? So uh, systems are complex and adaptive. Uh, they're also nonlinear, and this is hugely important for futurists, right? Uh, one of the things that I uh, often warn for people trying to predict the future, goddamn hard, right, as Yogi Berra said. But in particular, it's uh, extraordinarily difficult to call one trajectory. And that's why when you're thinking about the future, you need to think of a bundle of trajectories. And maybe at most, you can say something statistically about the ensemble. Probabilistic uh, outcomes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So broadly, okay, th in this range here, you know, there's a good chance it'll be in this range, but where it'll be in that range, goddamn hard to tell. It could still be beyond this range, but the probability is relatively low. We often use agent-based modeling to do this kind of exploration because you can't do it in closed form mathematics. Uh, later in the Santa Fe Institute world, right about the time I showed up, 2002, networks became a really big big aspect of the study of complexity because networks themselves have some very interesting computational attributes. And of course, our AIs today, deep learning neural nets are a manifestation of the computational power of a network. Uh, Self-organization is another hugely interesting and important part of the work we do. I uh, think of Twitter. Uh, Twitter is, is really remarkably modest in the functionality, the affordances that it gives. But there's mm -hmm. all kinds of self-organizing uh, com sub-communities within Twitter. There's science Twitter, Twitter. there's uh, black Twitter, there's housewife Twitter, there's art Twitter. There's uh, futurist Twitter. There's futurist Twitter, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, you know, it goes on and on. And then I would say- has actually developed a lot of the UI. You know, things like yeah. hashtags are, are an invention of the community. They weren't top-down directed. Exactly. So and, the, and the last one, and the last very important uh, concept of complexity is that complex things like life, like the economy, like uh, Twitter, typically happen at the edge between order and chaos. If you're in a chaotic realm, nothing can come together and happen. If you're in an ordered space, <laughs> Uh, like a crystal, uh, nothing too interesting happens. But uh, it turns out for that again and again, and uh, the, the exact math of this is still not totally nailed down, but we can certainly see lots of examples that this is where the interesting stuff happens. So if you want to live an interesting life, uh, to use an analogy, uh, don't be too staid and don't be too crazy. Be on the edge of chaos right? Where order and chaos mm. meet. That's, that's the interesting stuff. Well, you know, you know I, that's I, a good characterization of our time, the time that we're living in right now, because it feels yeah. like chaos. It feels like we're on the brink of degrading into chaos at any given moment. And everybody's trying to like patch together a solution, but I suppose that's the emergent, uh, the emergent adaptation that you described. Yeah. I, I am. Sorry, Jim. I am interested in, um, the fact that, you know, if, if you look at the problems that we face today, um, you know, the problems of climate change, um, the problems of inequality and so forth. A lot of this are, are large system modeling problems, you know, the um, use of resources at a city level, city state level and so forth. 
And I really do think that, um, you know, AI will be able to see patterns in these complex systems that we necessarily can't. And so when you look at things like urbanization, um, you know, and economic uh, organization and so forth, it's fascinating to think about how AI could take our understanding of complex systems in a, a very interesting direction. Um, particularly where we, you know, we'll have this black box function of AI making all these systems more uh, resource efficient, you know, as an example, um, you know, and, and, and better aligned with, uh, you know, goals and outcomes and things like that. Um, but we might, won't necessarily understand those systems any better than we do today. That's, that's the interesting piece of it. I had a very deep conversation with David Krakauer this week, who's the president of the Santa Fe Institute, one of the most brilliant people I know. In fact, it's on a podcast, probably out by this point uh, at thejimrutshow.com. Check it out or on your podcast app. And uh, he made some a brilliant, as always, Krakauerian insights into exactly this question. Uh, and uh, he made the distinction that deep learning models are very, very good for producing uh, actual predictions about irreducibly complex phenomena that we don't have any real understanding of. But as you point out, they don't really provide any understanding. They provide a prediction or a result or the the next word in the LLMs. On the other hand, complexity also works in the realm of the irreducibly uh, complex. Uh, Typically, Complexity science field only very rarely will come up with a mathematical formula that explains anything. Rather, they'll talk about the dynamics of a system and they'll coarse grain the problem down into smaller components and then simulate it often. It's a, reg- a very regular uh, tool we use is agent-based modeling and things related to that. And so, uh, and Krakauer and has, clearly has a vision for the Santa Fe Institute in how the complexity science lens and the deep learning lens are complementary. And that he even has some ideas on how they may come together where you take a uh, a deep learning net and basically take pieces off of it until it just barely works. And that may give us some insights into what's really going on. But uh, uh, I think we all agree that it, for humanity to give up on understanding would be a gigantic mistake. Uh, it would it's probably mean that we can't get much farther than we are. Uh, we did not figure out, uh, you know, electricity uh, from understanding fire, as it turned out. There was a big scientific breakthrough that had to occur to understand electricity. Same was true for quantum phenomena. Uh, A lot of things we have today are based on quantum phenomena, including our computer chips and GPS. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important to say, I agree with you that what deep learning and related technologies, RL in general, can do is produce useful results from irreducible complexity, but find very little in the way of insight. And we need the complexity lens to come at it from the other side so that we can do both. I've, and I've pointed out, I'm not sure anybody else has, is that one of the cool things about uh, the networks is uh, that they produce a lot of examples right? So if you think about science, it's often induction from examples. And so if we can think about how to use the networks to produce examples, and one of my favorites is AlphaFold, the Google product that's finally solved the problem using something like deep learning uh, on how to fold uh, proteins into their three-dimensional shapes, which is what actually makes them uh, catalytic. Uh, We had surprisingly little knowledge of how that worked, but now we could uh, predict like at the 90 or 95% uh, probability, how a given fold protein will fold. So what happens if you generate a billion of those, right? You now have something that you can use for induction to work on the theory. So uh, so there's a, there's a way that the uh, brute force, non uh 
pattern-oriented or non-theory-oriented uh, deep networks can actually produce the raw material for the theory side. So I want to come back to a point you made a minute ago, because I think it's an important one. It was uh, the, about electricity. You know, the, the phenomenon of electrical energy was was observed centuries before we had a theory of how it actually worked. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, even between uh, the, you know, the ability to, to kind of like you know, uh, connect with electricity through lightning, uh, there was even a hundred year span before we had some ability to, uh, to say we understood it and were able to generate electricity. Um, now, you mentioned the complexity of science is only about 40 years old as a field, um, and so it's relatively young. And some of the things you just described about deep learning, uh, where we're you know, fairly early stage in that field as well, although there's been a lot of work done for 50 years in artificial intelligence, deep learning in specific is only about 15 years old. And so um, we're at the early stages there, and it seems like we're still at this stage of observation. We haven't quite gotten to understanding. And certainly when we talk about the deep learning models that we're using today, we don't really understand how they work. Uh, you know, we understand in theory how they're created. We don't necessarily understand how they arrive at the conclusions that they provide. Um, and, and so your point is that um, observation is one piece, you know, observation or definition of the problem, but then the actual understanding that we attain, that may come many years later. Uh, and we may be working on these very problems we just described for decades before we arrive at true insight and understanding. Certainly possible, though I do think that uh, there is probably more going on uh, than is popularly aware in trying to understand what's going on in, in deep networks. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, the idea of semantic basins of attraction, for instance, uh, that uh, they, they just seem smarter than they should be considering what they actually are. So there must be some emergence going on. The, but that's, that, well, I shouldn't say must. It's a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And there is some very early sketchy data of people who write probes to go in and watch what's going on in the networks. But I would expect there'd be some learning on that over the next two years, two to three years, something like that. I don't think it's 50 years off to start the process of understanding what these things are. Uh, you know, but I and, say given, like, and given the intensity of the resources and, and, uh, and research uh, skill that's been directed that field, you're probably right. You know, if we throw enough resource at it, we'll get there faster. The other thing time, is, uh, go, we're going to go take ahead. a break in a moment. But before we do that, uh, our audience likes to get to know our, who we're interviewing a little bit on a personal level. And we like to ask some questions about uh, what inspired you and how you how you got interested in the subject of the future. And, and typically, this is something that Brett does. So, Brett, do you want to take it away and, and yeah, do sure. the, the lightning round? OK, Jim, you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. What was the first science fiction story you remember being exposed to? Hi, this is, I can remember quite distinctly. I used to have a strong aversion to fiction. Uh, teachers would try to get me to read fiction. I go, that stuff's false. That they just made that shit up. Why would I read that? I'd been a fanatical reader of science books since I was five, right? I found because I was tall, I could sneak into the library and the librarians didn't realize I was, I was a first grader and they let me Man. check out the uh, science books. But I had a teacher in Fifth grade, Mrs. Hepner. Let's give her credit. She started all this. God damn it! Uh, Thanks, uh, she was a, she she was tough, but she was also had a big heart. And she said, "Well, yeah, but you know what? I think you would like is science fiction." And so hmm. she took me personally, one on one, down to the library and picked out two books by Andre Norton. No, one by Andre Norton, hmm. one by Robert Highland. And hmm. these were both sort of juvenilia ish science fictions. And man, oh, I was addicted instantly. Yeah, yeah. I was hooked instantly. You were the and, first guest to mention Andre Norton, which would be my, one of my earliest sci fi fans. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was Andre well. Norton. 
I can't remember the exact book. By the way, uh, the Picaden of Mars, I believe, was was the uh, was the Highland one. But then Sargasso I quit... of Space or something like that. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> Andrea Norton, really, really good writer, was not very well. She's not very well known these days. But for kids, I still recommend people want to start kids off on something. Yeah. They're they're very heartful and they're very understanding of what a young reader would think about. But then I just became a nut and just read every single science fiction book that was published in hard covers, uh, yeah. which basically meant it was showed up in our community library. Uh, I certainly couldn't afford to buy books at that stage. And so I wrote, literally read everything that was published in hardcovers. And then came the fateful event when I was in sixth grade, when I went to the library and picked up the Foundation Trilogy. Ah, and uh, and I, I warn people, probably not wise to read the Foundation Trilogy when you're 10. And right. <laughs> uh, for way too long, I thought something like psychohistory second, was possible. Second season of Foundation. Go oh, man. Are you like it? Apple, Apple TV? Yeah. Yeah, I, I watched the first episode and went back. But uh, <laughs> okay, uh, next question, Brett. These are supposed to right. be short answers. These um, are not like yeah. dissertation <laughs> answers. Um, what technology do you think has most changed humanity? Language. Let's, let's say written language, alphabet, uh, okay. number one, uh, which is not that old. It's only 800 BC or thereabouts. Uh, well, I take the, the alphabet as opposed to cuneiform and others, right. but that exactly. caused an explosion. Um, uh, the zero was another huge one, yes. right? Uh, you Thank could you not India. do you cannot do advanced math, which means you can't do advanced science without the zero. Uh, and then or I'd infinity. say, or well, yeah, you have to at least have the concept of infinity, if not yeah, the number sure. infinity. Uh, and then after that, uh, it's clearly. Uh, the next one is the capture of heat and turning it into mechanics. So, so the steam engine. Uh, okay. then, then well, that's a good selection. That's a yeah. good selection. Yeah. What's the what's the best prediction an entrepreneur, futurist, or science fi fi fiction practitioner has ever made? Do you think the best prediction? Um, most of them, you know, the details are all wrong. Uh, the uh, well, you know, Arthur C. Clarke uh, anticipating communication satellites is the classic example people throw up, but he did a pretty good job of that one. Uh, I would I would say uh, John Bruner's Stand on Zanzibar, which is uh, used to be a great classic, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, which where he essentially predicted uh, the rise of mass insanity as a society. Uh, I think it's turned out to be oh, damn prescient and prescient. Uh, if not in That's interesting, not in the details, but in the substance. I mean, yeah, the world yeah, yeah. that that stayed on Zanzibar is set in, while totally different in every detail. The fact that but you, you could know, you could say idiocracy too, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. My wife and I love that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's like altogether right. too uh, too too true. <laughs> Last one before the break. Um, what science fiction story is most representative of the future you hope for? Near term. Uh, I like the work of uh, Daniel Suarez, uh, uh, Delta V in particular. And then what's the new one he just published? I ought to know since I did a podcast on it. Uh, Daniel Suarez. He also has some excellent uh, other books like Damon, uh, who talk, he talks. I think he understands VR and where it's going better than anybody. Uh, let me say, if, if, to get the most recent one. Uh, it's a two-part series. The third one will be coming. Delta V, and what's the third one? God, second one, God damn it. Anyway, start with Delta V and then read the second one, wherever the hell it is. So those are, uh, I, I think, yeah, excellent. I like his critical mass. That's yeah, critical mass, that's the one. That's the one that followed Delta yeah. V. 
Uh, so those two, and there's a third one coming. They are really perceptive on how space exploration couples with economics, which couples with alternative currencies, which couples with environmental uh, crises uh, on the world. Uh, the other yeah, one. I, I, now, now you say it, I, I think that's that's an interesting element of his um, sci-fi, you know, whereas you got guys, you know, you got a lot of the big space opera guys that. Right, but he he writes shorter term sci-fi, looking at some of these interesting issues, which a lot of a lot of science fiction authors, including William Gibson, have, have said it's getting harder to do that sort of science fiction these days because you know things move so quickly. But anyway, Jim, let's take a quick break. You're listening right, to the Futurists, uh, and uh, I'm your host, Brett King, with Rob Tersek. We'll be right back with uh, Jim Rutt after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. Before the break, we were uh, chatting with Jim Rutt, and uh, Jim has uh, done a lot of work in... um, the early technology arenas uh, of the internet and, um, you know, socialization of technology, critical systems thinking. But Jim, one of the areas that um, you seem to have spent um, increasing time in your career looking at is the complex system of social order and humanity and how, um, you know, the, the, the organizing principles of, uh, you call it the social operating system for humanity how that may be evolving or morphing. Um, first of all, let me ask you this question. Why do you think that social operating system has to change? Well, we believe in the Game B movement that the world, the current system, Game A, is literally self-terminating. It will end, right? The question will be, will the end be graceful or will it be catastrophic? Uh, you know, at a very simple level, since 1700, uh, standards of living have been increasing, but so has population by more than 12x. Uh, the impact on the environment of each person is up in about 10 or 12x. So the cumulative impact of humanity on our on our Earth is about 150x what it was back then. Uh, we are already over the carrying capacity of the earth in numerous categories and we'll be uh, running over more and more of them uh, very soon. But that will get us by the end of the century if we don't do something. So game A has to end, but there's other things going on too. And this is what we were talking about before the break. Uh, Game A in its very psychologically astute exploitation of people for short-term money on money and uh, return seems to be driving humanity crazy. Uh, And I think there's a fair chance uh, that our whole system will collapse from uh, mass insanity uh, long before uh, we actually cook ourselves to death uh, through climate change. Uh, and then a third, uh, the there are plenty of other uh, potentially terminal uh, existential risks out there that Game A seems to have no idea how to manage. For instance, the bio risks, the idea that we were funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology for doing gain of function uh, research on bat viruses, which 
I have, you know, the evidence isn't conclusive yet, but the, uh, uh, shall we say, the the uh, coincidence is fairly staggering uh, that uh, that COVID started in Wuhan, about uh, half a mile from the uh, uh, from the institute. It's pretty pretty large. We're not thinking about these things. We do not have a governance structure that's sufficient to manage the situation we're in. We are in a complexity regime of a basin of attraction, which is we call it game A. It's like a, a salad bowl. The marbles rolling around. The salad bowl is shaking more and more and more and more and more from all these uh, exponential advances in everything. And sooner or later, the marble's going to fly out of the bowl. And unfortunately, well, we Ian, go ahead. Ian Bremmer, who, who's a great political scientist, um, has some great commentary on this. The fact that if you look at Apple, Apple just surpassed $3 trillion in you know, market cap um, valuation um, last week or whatever it was. But you look at the, the amount of cash they have on hand, and, um, you know, a- Apple has more cash than most developing nations, right, in terms of cash on hand. Um, and so their ability to influence policy because of their economic resources on a global basis is, is pretty spectacular. We don't have to let right. them. But, but we, this we are, point, we are the, right? the current system, game A, empowers them to manipulate the politics. But if you think about it, like, you know, with fossil fuel companies, they've been playing that game for 50 years. Absolutely. So mining companies. So this is just getting to the point where they've now got the financial resources and other resources to be truly meaningful in terms of policy setting and so forth. And, um, you know, there there is actually this show on Apple TV, Rob, Rob and I've talked about it before. I don't know if you've seen it yet, Rob, which is Extrapolations. It's a which disaster. Sort of oh, my this, God. Yeah. Plays this out, you know. Um, but it's 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 all virtue signaling for liberals. I mean, it's like such a lecture that show. It's such a disaster. I am so disappointed. <laughs> I, I can't even tell you how disappointed I was so excited to see it. And it looks great. And if you see the trailer and we should TV, have a show on the on that show. Uh, um, but it, I don't need a show to teach me and to lecture me about uh, climate change. Uh, and basically, look, it's about a bunch of rich liberals who fly around in their personal helhelicopters complaining about climate change. The whole thing is filled with contradictions. No, I, I, let me, I let that, me get the, to the point you were making, because I do want to respond yeah. to some of the things you just said. Um, the governance structures that we currently have don't seem to be working. Right. This seems to be the recurring problem. Uh, and and weirdly, to Jim's point. What's emerging is a kind of collective insanity. And in U.S. politics is one illustration of it. But it's not the only one. Uh, if you look at the motivations for the war, the yeah, invasion of Ukraine right? that are cited by Putin, those have changed several times. Uh, you know, at one point he said he was there to stop fascism. Uh, it, there doesn't seem to be any rationale for taking over, except for a land grab or maybe a resource grab. Um, but all the all the reasons that have been cited for that war haven't really stood up like there there was no self-defense need there was no and there was no motivation for that war that's not the only one if you look at capitol hill right now while there are some really serious issues facing the united states um the congressional republicans are trapped in the cycle of running investigations about pseudo events stuff that never really happened and they're turning that into like kind of a, a, a crisis while there are the actual real crises that could benefit from some government intervention so the way our system works is we got private businesses that are there to maximize return to investor, and they are resource extractors. So they they will go after as many resources as possible. There's no there seems to be no limit on their ability. But this to is this is a key problem, Jim. Right? Because this um, is game A, right? And it's essence. Game A. Yeah, game A's essence. 
is the inner loop of game A is short-term money on money return. By short-term, right. I mean about three years. Everything is bent to that. Think about our culture, how rotten it is, right? Why are yeah. uh, adolescent girls committing suicide at a much higher rate than they ever were before? Why is uh, the number of friends that people have fallen by more than half over the last 30 years? Why is everything suck? Because of the inevitable demands of the loop the inner doom loop of money on money return. This is right. This is, I mean, you know, I have this debate with people all the time and, you know, I talk about capitalism and if you have any conversation where you challenge the longevity of capitalism, particularly in economies like the U S or the UK, you have this almost um, religious response. um, Well, they're wrong. That's the way it is. They're going to have to, or we're going to die. So guys, pick your your choice, right? All the smart people say that all the smart people say, if we continue to go down this path of capitalism, where the market makes these decisions instead of moral and ethical decisions and decisions that are optimal for Uh, it's a classic collective action problem though. Who wants to get off the carousel first? Right. So exactly. Exactly. We all have to earn an income. We're all trapped in the system. Yeah, this we is all where have game to drive to the grocery store, so we all have a car. We have an idea, and Game B had to do this because you are absolutely right. When you start talking about this, people they think you're crazy, right? And mm-hmm. I will also note that we have to be very careful in our distinctions here. Uh, capitalism is an overarching system, but the right, market right. is actually a very useful phenomenon. One of the very mm-hmm. most useful tools. I should have put that in my list of extremely useful inventions of humanity is the market. Amazing for uh, uh, coalescing data in real time, very heterogeneous, and yet producing actionable information. Yeah, but it doesn't solve all problems. Bad incentives, right? Yeah, but it it doesn't solve all problems. Yeah, yeah. There's some things it's good for, and some things it's not. Right? Uh, To sort out who's the better barber in a town, it might be great. Uh, To decide, uh, you know, how much oil should be extracted from the earth and burned is a disaster. Right? Uh, At least if you have a single fungible token called uh, called you know U.S. dollars or equivalent, or even how to allocate healthcare in the United yeah, or, States. Or like we're trying to use people. the market for that. It doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it, it's part of the toolkit, but it, we have allowed it to trump everything. It's money, 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 Uber Alice, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I have a paper called In Search of the Fifth Attractor, where I just describe Game B as the fifth attractor. And I have a nice little graphic there of a fire in a furnace that's heating a house and a house on fire. And, uh, you know, things like an economy are supposed to be a fire in a furnace for heating the house. Uh, what we've allowed them to do is become the house on fire and it just dominates everything. Right. Uh, and for the folks who are listening, though, let me let me do a little public service announcement here because I want folks to understand what we're talking about. So um, what Jim is describing is a concept called Game B. And it's presented as an alternative to what we are all currently living in this chaos we've all been referring to in the last five minutes of conversation which is known as game A. Game A is the way things are currently. Uh, The thing that we're all complaining about uh, is the dysfunction of our current social order and our economic system. Game B is meant to be an alternative. Now, I want to, I'm going to quote a couple of things from Jordan Hall, who's one of the thought leaders along with Jim in in this game B movement. Game B is not an ideology. It's not a political stance. It's not a political program. Uh, It's not a cult-like movement. It's not a pseudo-religion like the singularity. It's also not a vision of a utopia. Uh, It's a realistic or practical understanding of the way things work and the motivations people have. It's also not intended to be a counter-reaction necessarily to game A. It's an alternative uh, to game A. Now, by defining something as what it's not, you're not really saying a great deal about what it actually is. And, And Jim, this is one of the recurring conversations we've been having over the last couple of years is... 
So what is Game B and where does it stand today? Yeah, Game B is the alternative to Game A, so we start with that. Okay, uh, but sure. it also has some firm principles, uh, and I would say that uh, two of the firmest principles is it is a, a vector towards living for all humanity, all 8 billion of us, in balance with the natural world and bringing natural world back to where uh, uh, we've already overrun a lot of natural world. You know, the fact that... Uh, Ninety-six uh, percent of all mammal weight on Earth now is humans and our domestic animals. Eighty uh, percent of the mass of all birds on Earth are turkeys, chickens, ducks, and such for poultry production. That's nuts. It's not right. Uh, so we have to dial it back some. And, and but and this is where Davos man is entirely wrong. Even the Davos man who understands we have to dial it back. All they say is less, 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 right? And you end yeah. up with the yellow jackets, right? You end up with rioting and you're going to end up with fascism in the United States if we continue on this role. Look at the, all the right-wing parties in Europe. You have to yeah, but, same, you know, I you mean, mean, when an have, elite comes in and says, we're going to cut something back. Yeah, less, oh, let, let me finish this. This is yeah, hugely sure. important. This is the okay. most important thing I have to say today, uh, okay. which is game B has to be a trade where we have we lower the amount of inputs in the rich countries of the world, raise them in the poor countries, while increasing the human well being of everybody. So we right. need an operating system that's focused on human well-being as its maximization function, not money on money return, uh, using money, using markets, using other kinds of signaling. And we have many ideas about other kinds of signaling besides U.S. dollars, but all focused to optimize well-being within planetary boundaries. If we can do those two things, we can survive. And it, it provides the minimal scaffolding on what game B is. Now, it turns out those things have huge implications. If you if you question everything you do with those two principles, is this encouraging human flourishing and increasing human well-being? Is this moving us away from our impositions on a planetary boundary? If you every decision you make, you apply those two standards, it's amazing the results that you get. Uh, and we Hashtag have optimal humanity. Yeah, yeah we've uh, we have uh, been, uh, tried to apply this to a number of things, and and in turn and to the practical problem. Because you just said earlier, I'm a practical guy. You know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm only forced to be a philosopher by absolute necessity. I'm by nature a man of action, right? Uh, you know, give me 10 guys and some rifles and we'll go take a hill. That's who I am, right? And uh, uh, so I've, I have always been the person in the Game B community. There's some, a, a whole bunch of good thinkers, at least 20 excellent thinkers uh, in the Game B community. And uh, uh, But I'm the one who's probably most oriented towards action. And mm -hmm. so, well, so given, that, that, given we see this collective insanity emerging... How can we get the sanity back? How can we have, you know, these, these conversations, which, um, you know, are going to be seen as woke, you know, in the current environment and things like that. Um, but, you know, we need thinking people to, to really tackle this. I mean, we've got, you know, Thomas Piketty says we've got the worst inequality, you know, since the Middle yeah. Ages in the United yeah. States right now. Why do You've we got, have billionaires? Why do they, yeah, why do we tolerate know, billionaires? Yeah. What? That's what? A and when distribution when people of can't, wealth. Can't, you know, we got 30 million Americans facing possible eviction because they're, you know, one paycheck away from not being able to pay the rent, right? It's like th this is not, um, this is not a metric for a successful market or in a successful economy. If you can't provide your citizens with basic healthcare, basic uh, housing access, um, you know, affordable food, good quality food, um, you know, access to education. If you can't do those basic things, your economy is a failure.
There's a reason why on Twitter, I actually I'm social media sabbatical for six months as I am every year from June for January, July 1st to January 2nd. So I'm not actually on uh, social media at the moment. Uh, But when I'm on Twitter, I would say at least once a week, I uh, post my response as a picture, uh, an 18th century picture of two guillotines and some people holding heads up. Right. Uh, This is where this ends up. Right. I just did a I just did a podcast. It's not published today yet. The billionaires we'll be, will have their laser robot sentries, but yeah. still. Uh, but tell you what, uh, 10 and million the peasants will have their pitchforks. Baseball, <laughs> right, yeah. baseball bats and pillows. It's all we need, right? Uh, and I just did a, a podcast with Peter Turchin, who is oh, right on. Uh, 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 a deep thinker in the end times of our culture. And, uh, you know, he believes there's a 30% chance at least that there will be a violent break in the US of A in the next 10 years. And game yeah. B is the alter- an alternative to move away from having to have a violent break. And uh, if game A doesn't uh, start to reform itself, well, there's a good chance that we'll have guillotines in the streets. And you ask, where? why do we have billionaires? The answer is, we won't. <laughs> but it will be a rather brutal, uh, a brutal uh, method to extirpate them. I sometimes uh, think about how will how will future historians look at the moment that we're in, you know, when it's just a few paragraphs in a history book of the future. Um, and I think I, they're going to look at this I've as kind this- of like. The Gilded Age this, Part Two, you know, where uh, a handful yeah. of billionaires are having caviar and champagne on their yachts, while millions, billions live in grinding poverty, right? And that seems to be the trajectory, right? Because the richer, I, I think, richer, I think you're right, Rob. I think in the, in a hundred years, I think that's the case. But in a thousand years, the only thing that our generation will be remembered for is the creation of AI and climate change. Uh, well, actually, I have one. I have another one, but that's what okay. I campaign for. But uh, in the, um, we're, we're going to go with this. The, um, I don't want to react to all those things. Very interesting. Uh, well, let me give you, the, let me give you the big one. What I believe in a thousand years, the most important thing in my lifetime, uh, because it's a total change in the trajectory of human history for the last 10,000 years. And that is the beginnings of the full liberation of women starting around 1975. Uh, human society's been a oh, yeah. very intense patriarchy since the establishment of settled agriculture. Uh, and it got more and more and more intense and just crazy. And around 1975, the world started to wake up. It hasn't fully woken up up yet you know uh yeah. just talk to any women about what it's like to be a woman even today and the job is not done but we've made tremendous progress since then so i believe it'll be the liberation of women that will be considered the single biggest thing that like happened that. in the 20th century oh, i like that uh, for the folks who are listening if you're still a little bit uh, if you find this conversation a little bit elusive because game b is a little hard to describe use the terminology of game a uh, i'm going to quote jordan hall again here because he makes a really good point Earlier, Jim, you said uh, the game that we're playing right now will end, right? There is a terminal point at this current game, and we can kind of project out that if we can continue to burn more resource than the planet can provide, the planet's not going to come to an end, but humanity has a very strong likelihood of terminating. It may not be humanity, but at least advanced technological society. We're not going to probably kill everybody off, but we're not going to have computer chips and airplanes and stuff like that. So, so what Jordan says is uh, Jordan Jordan Hall, who's a thought leader in this space of game B. He says, um, "Game A is an infinite is a finite game where there's a the the goal of the game is to win." And so we talked about billionaires. They by current metrics, money, they're winning the game A, but it is a finite game. And the difference with game B is game B is an infinite game, and the idea is not to win. The idea the idea is 
to keep playing, to keep playing the game. So that's, uh, you know, impact inside of that metaphor is a concept of sustainability and some measure of uh, equality in, the, in terms of uh, agency. You know, that you are a player, you're at, you have agency in this, you can do something. You're not on the receiving end, you're actually on the contributing end or the participating end. Um, so Jim, why don't you comment a little bit about that with respect to the future? Because this is the part of the show where we like to sort of look out 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Yeah, well, again, how we think we get there is we have we believe we have to start by building membranes that are sep- intentionally separated from game A. Game A is just too powerful uh, to be able to have individual about two percent, probably all three of us are cranks that can tell the world to go f- itself, right? But most people aren't that way. They conform to social norms. So if you want uh, people to be able to uh, live in a better way, they have to be surrounded by other people that share those norms. You know, the example I give, my daughter is very worried that her three-year-old, what happens when uh, her best friend at age nine comes home with a smartphone, comes over with a smartphone. Uh, and the, you know, the social pressure for uh, my granddaughter to have a, so- a smartphone would be very high. But if we live in a community where there has been a covenant against giving smartphones to children that they're worse than cigarettes, that won't be an issue. And it'll be much easier for normal people to be able to uh, live those good lives. So we think that uh, you start out with small bubbles and that these bubbles uh, vary. They're not the same. They're not ideological. They're not utopian. That's very, very important in game B. And then they start to network with each other in a decentralized fashion, doing trades with each other, having their own currency, uh, et cetera. And then they start to be, uh, uh, people start to notice. They come and visit. There's Airbnbs at these uh, proto-Bs, as we call them, the little bubbles, right? People say, wait a minute, these people, this is a great place to have children, to be a young parent. Uh, There's community-based babysitting, essentially, community-based education. Uh, Half the food is grown on the property. People eat together, very much like in an early stage Israeli kibbutz. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a kibbutz or some sort of commune. And I studied, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a good old hippie, right? Uh, the uh, but I've actually studied the Israeli kibbutz movement very closely and have talked to scholars of the field, and there's a lot to be learned there, right? It was non-ideological, non-religious. They were all atheists. Well, they were all socialists but, from Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, mean, they created we, something we very about, powerful. We can talk about kibbutzes and we can talk about socialism and all these terms that that um, people use, but. The reality is, you know, I think Aristotle put it the best. He said, you know, the purpose of humanity is to thrive, but yes. humanity can only do that when we work together, right? Pretty much. And I think, I think that, you know, like if you look at the problems that we have right now, the problems that the market driven is it's competition against each other instead of competition for the planet, for humanity as a whole. So whenever you're competing with resources, you have to decide, you know, which humans are the better humans that get these resources versus these other humans that don't, right? And, you know, as long as you don't value human lives in that way, you know, from a market resource allocation perspective, you have, you, you know, that humanity will essentially tear itself apart and become extinct at some point. Right. So you've got to have a different value system that says community of humans working together is the best way we move forward as a species. Um, so but, what you're saying is if you're really committed to game A, you're sort of a sociopath because you just don't care about other humans. You're anti-human. Yeah, you're if, you're anti-human. Be, if you're going to be a good on a long enough to, on long enough basis, you're anti-human. Right? Yeah, I, and I fully confess on my podcast regularly that I, in my day, I was a game A mother. I was really good at playing game A. Right. 
And uh, that is not the right way to be. And game B is going to have very different values. And, and we, one of the things we think is very important uh, is that uh, game B, is, the first step in game B is to rebuild the mesoscale, the famous Dunbar number, communities around 150 people. And in fact, if you look at the what finally broke the back of our sanity, it's the death of the mesoscale. Uh, up to about 1875, most people got their sense of security and provisioning from the community around them around 150 people. Read Robin Dunbar's books on it. It's amazing all across the world. 1875, that started to be rapidly replaced by two cold transactional engines, one called the market and the other called the government. And uh, essentially, those have depleted the mesoscale at accelerating rate ever since. You know, Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone, back in the 90s, was a manifestation of that. The count of friendships, the number of voluntary organizations that are, continues to decline. Uh, and so the first thing Game B is going to focus on, it's not by far the last, we have a comprehensive system plan, is to rebuild the mesoscale where we are actually living in community at around 150 people. And, and these 150 people have have built a covenant, an agreement on their values and virtues and norms and how they're going to live. And by the way, they may be quite different than the proto-B down the road three miles. It's a concept we call coherent pluralism. This is hugely important also uh, because most of these social change things, so you do it our way or we're going to burn you at the stake. Think of the Wokies, for instance, right? Uh, The, uh, uh, you know, the, um, Game B does not say that. Game B says we have two things, live within planetary limits, increase human well-being, and another one about voice and exit, which is kind of a high-level policy on how things should be governed. But beyond that, hey, you want to run like a Victorian uh, town? Uh, Do it that way. You want to be a free love commune? Do it that way. We don't care. Uh, And as long as you – and. as long as you deal with each other honestly and coherently. Uh, so uh, w- that's one of the things we think is going to be a real secret weapon for the growth of Game B because we we are in favor of pluralism. There's lots of ways to be Game B, not just one. And so people will quickly... Uh, we think once there's a we reach a critical mass tipping point, uh, a very rapid phase transition. This comes from complexity science, by the way. So, so Jim, uh, when? I mean, this is the thing, 2050, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'm, Look I'm, 30 I'm aiming for about 2060 to 2070 to fully make okay. the conversion. And do you think, so do you think we will have to have a partial collapse of society before that happens? Well, so our earlier talk about trajectories and uncertainties, uh, I just don't know, right? I think there's a, certainly a chance we could have a collapse at any time. Tomorrow afternoon, it could start. And that's one of the interesting things about complex systems. The pebble that starts the avalanche, you never know what it's going to be. Uh, say Peter Tershin gives a 30% chance of a collapse in the U.S. in the next 10 years. Probably a good a, a number as any. Uh, so we have to be prepared to go both ways. What I describe as the 60-year march, three generations, essentially, I call the long road to game B. And that is there may be some uh, inflections. And keep in mind that these inflections are, they vary in magnitude. And most of the inflections are not civilization ending, but they're scary, right? COVID was not civilization ending, but it was scary. Financial crisis of 2008 wasn't civilization ending, but it was scary. Every one of the times there's a fluctuation like that, that's a pump to move people from game A to game B, right? And once we reach- Which I talk about the climbing economic uncertainty, right? The the precarious, the the growth of the precarious. The system becomes less and less stable, and, um, you know, and that's why you get uh, revolutions and, you know, protests. Uh, well, let, me give you the la- let me give you the last thought why, why what we're doing is possible, right? So wait a minute. How can you change the whole system? Well, you don't have to. Uh, one of the things we have learned from 
simulations of complex systems is there are tipping points in complex systems. And in social systems, they seem to be in the 3 to 15% range. If we can get 3 to 15% of people to be passionate about game B, who show that this is a better way to live, are actually living that way, uh, the poor suckers still stuck in game A are going to, at some point, do a mass yeah, flip. like dicks. And they're going to say, this, this is, why are we doing this? This is just asinine. Well, you know, I think you're starting to see that with things like sustainability and climate change already. It's, you know, people are now sort of saying, I, I just saw on Twitter today, people saying, no, these are crimes. When you defend, you know, the existing system, that is going to, that's a crime, you know? So anyway. Um, they Jim, still buy the t-shirt with the microfiber. No, I, and I, I know, but you know, that's, so, we got, we do have to change that system. Um, you know, and and we have to value sustainability, and we have to make it so that corporations that aren't adding to the net benefit of humanity overall, um, you know, that basically they're vilified. You know, at some point, you know, we need that. But anyway, how do we bring this show to an end? I know. Well, uh, <laughs> talking about know, complex uh, topics. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll we'll leave it with with this. Um, is uh, Jim? How how can people get started on Game B? You know, okay. what, uh, where do we go? What do we at do? At the moment, you can find the others, as we say, at www.game-b.org. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of not very well-organized material at gamebee.wiki. And there's a, a cute little 16-minute short film that's a lot of fun that at least gives you the vibe if you're into The vibes. video game. Uh, oh, anyway, gamebfilm.org, uh, which is a film uh, that starts out with a video game motif, but then uh, goes a long way from there. So, uh, so any of those three things uh, give you a starting point. Also, check out the hashtag, hashtag GameB. Over on Twitter, you'll find 10,000 people probably, something like that. Are you moving uh, to threads or are you going to just avoid threads? Anything has to do with uh, meta ain't no way. Uh, I think, you know, unlike a lot of people, I actually think that Twitter's gotten better under uh, yeah. Elon's administration. Uh, I, I'm, I'm doubtful, but okay. I, I don't see how that's another show. We'll do another show on that. Happy to do yeah. that one. Right. But uh, uh, anyway, this has been fun. Uh, and Jim, anyone? where can people yeah, find you? Jim. I know there's the Jim Rutt show, which I've, Jim been on. I've enjoyed. It's a yeah. great conversation. If you like this kind of conversation, it's a lot more of this with great speakers, <laughs> great guests. How do people find you, Jim? Yeah, jimrutshow.com. That's the best way to find me. Uh, six months of the year, you can find me at Jim underscore Rutt on Twitter or Jim Rutt on Facebook. But for the next six months, I am on my uh, fifth annual social media sabbatical. Uh, so, you know, send a contact, hit a contact at jimrutshow.com if you feel like you really want to talk to me. Cool. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm so super happy to connect the two of you because I know that you both think about these subjects in depth and have written about them a lot. So that's good fun. And folks, I hope you will take the time to check out the Game B material. At least watch that short video because like Jim said, it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, thanks very much to the folks who've been listening. Jim, thank you for joining us. Brett, it's great to see you back again. Big shout out to our friends at Provoke Media who make the show possible. Kevin, thanks for being a superb engineer and Lisbeth for producing the show. And to all the folks uh, who've been supporting our show, sending suggestions and uh, encouraging other people to check it out. We appreciate that too, very, very much. We have been enjoying producing this uh, this program. It's been a, a kind of a labor of love for, for me and Brett and our, our expanding cast of co-hosts. And we'll continue doing it. You'll see us here next week with yet another future thinker. Uh, and until then, 
Well, Brett, you take it away from here. Until then, we'll see, we'll you, see you in the future. <laughs> nice. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.